Hello and welcome to the John Podcast. My name is Daryl Sluka and I am your host today. The passage we are examining is John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. I'm going to start off by reading the passage to you and I'd encourage you if you have a Bible with you or if you're in a position where you can take it out and read it, go ahead and do so. It'll kind of help to have the visual of it being in front of you as we as we go through it today, but if not, totally fine. I'll be reading uh I'll be reading through it a few times. So here's the passage, John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. For you uh, gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Today, I want to share some aspects about this passage that really speak a lot to my heart. It is something we all use every day, but probably never think about, and that is language. A little preface uh, and background for you. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies with an emphasis in the original languages of the Bible from Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. While in college, I studied ancient Greek for three years and ancient Hebrew for one year. So, without further ado, we're going to skip through the first sentence uh, where it says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, and we're going to move directly into, Father, the hour has come. This phrase is really interesting, and it, it, and it reveals a lot about this whole plan about Jesus returning to the Father. So nothing about the phrase, it's time, is really profound in and of itself. A wife may say to her husband, it's time to go to the store. Going to the store isn't that big of a deal, so the husband gets ready to go, but he doesn't really move with any urgency. He's kind of like, yeah, okay, let's go. However, if a wife who is nine months pregnant turns to her husband and says, it's time, the implications are much weightier. Now, the husband moves with urgency because something is about to happen that will change everything forever. The weight behind Jesus' words here of it's time or the hour has come is like that of giving birth. Or rather, in Jesus' case, it's like giving rebirth on a cosmic level. The weightiness behind Jesus' statement is communicated through an ancient Greek verb tense called the perfect tense. The perfect tense was used to communicate that an event happened and it was completed in the past, but the effects of that event carry on into the future. Marriage is a great example of this. My wedding ceremony happened at a specific moment in the past, but the effects of that ceremony carry on into the future. I am still married today because of that ceremony in the past. So when Jesus says, the hour has come, or it is time, in the perfect tense, he is communicating that what is about to happen is incredibly significant and weighty because it is going to create permanent effects into the future. So after Jesus says, it is time, he says, um, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So this, this next statement of glorify is something that also stood out to me in a really big way. The imperative tense was mostly used when someone was giving a command. We still use this today in English. A great example is when a parent tells their kid, go clean your room. However, Jesus is not strong-arming the father here. He is not commanding the father as a superior would command his subordinate. Instead of being an outright command, the imperative here invokes a sense of pleading. 
as if Jesus is asking as strongly as he can for the Father to glorify him. When used this way, the individual using the imperative recognizes that what he or she is asking for has a narrow chance of actually happening. Just like how a frustrated or angry parent knows there is little chance that their kid is going to actually clean his room after the two of them have a fight. Nevertheless, the parent has a deep desire that their kid would clean their room. The same applies here. Jesus is deeply moved by his desire for the Father to initiate the final stages of the plan for salvation. Now, the remarkable thing is that, unlike human parents and kids, the Father and the Son of the Trinity are always in perfect harmony. They have the same goals, desires, and wishes. The Son is not asking the Father to glorify him so that the Son overcomes an inferiority complex. Um, he's asking so that he may, in return, glorify the Father. This is something Jesus always does. He draws people to himself and then points them to the Father. The ancient Greeks didn't say the word glorify because that's an English word. So when the earliest Christians were reading this, instead of glorify, they said doxasan. Say that with me because it's just so much fun to say. Doxasan. So the first possible meaning is to adorn something or someone with luster or with splendor. The second one is to render it excellent. That is, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become acknowledged. And the third and final one is within the context of God exalting or rather restoring Christ his son to a state of glory in heaven. This final definition, the one in which God restores Christ to heaven, um, is what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is not asking the Father to simply make his name well known. He is asking him to restore him to his rightful place at the Father's right hand in heaven, the ultimate seat of glory for the Son. This prayer indicates that Jesus knows in order for that to happen, he must go to the cross, which means that this prayer must be agonizing for Jesus because in order to be with the Father, he must die. So starting at the top, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. We see the mind of God at work here. The Father handcrafted a plan to save humanity after the fall. And in his plan, he said, this must happen, this must happen, and this must happen. And then the son, in turn, hears the father's plan and says, I am on board with that 110,000%, and I will faithfully fulfill that plan if you equip me to do so. Then the father returns and says, I will equip you to do that plan. Here, you are now equipped. Go and do these things. So when he says, so that the Son may glorify you, for you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him, Jesus is in full command to grant salvation to us after these works are completed. Um, and so that's just a really remarkable aspect of the mind of God at work and how he drew out this plan. Moving on in the prayer, he actually gives us a definition of eternal life here in the next 
sentence in verse 3. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. The phrase that they may know is significant for two reasons. The first reason is the verb tense, and the second reason is the word itself. So we'll first take a look at this verb tense. In ancient Greek, the subjunctive tense was the tense of possibility or purpose or result. Think of the subjunctive like this. If A happens, then B may or might happen. Or let me say it a different way. If A happens, then B is allowed the chance to happen. To use a March Madness reference here, an underdog team has a chance, they have a possibility of winning the entire tournament if they are able to get into the tournament. So going back to our passage in John, let's tie everything together that we've read thus far. Jesus says, the time has come for the Father and Son to glorify each other because once this happens, eternal life is now possible. Eternal life is now an option on the table. And eternal life is defined as knowing God. This leads us to the second part of this phrase that is significant, and that is the word that they may know itself. The word to know is pretty common in all world languages. In ancient Greek, it can mean to know facts or to know a person, and we see a similar construct in modern-day Spanish. This blew me away, um, because in this setting in John, the verb to know um, means to become acquainted with an individual. So what does it mean to become acquainted with someone? It means that you are first introduced to someone you previously did not know. Think about that. You are first introduced to someone you previously did not know. The glorification of the Son leads to the glorification of the Father because the Father gave the Son full command over the earth. And the result of that mutual glorification is us being allowed the chance to be introduced to the person of God. Imagine sitting in a waiting room and Jesus comes through a door and calls you by name. You stand up, you walk up to Jesus and walk alongside him through that door, and then he escorts you up to the Almighty Father, the one who is completely sovereign over creation, the one who spoke everything into existence. And the Father extends his hand to you and says, Hi, it's nice to meet you. Man, that that image just really speaks so powerfully to me because... God doesn't need me in his life in order to have a perfect existence, but he wants me in his life and he's invited me into his life and he's gone to every extent imaginable to bring me into his life, to give me the chance to step into his life. Okay, so let's finish out the final two uh, verses of this prayer. In verse four, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Um, so we see here just kind of Jesus capping off what it what this mutual glorification looks like. Um, again, as I said earlier, the Father handcrafted this plan, the Son fulfilled it, 
and he fulfilled it because the Father equipped him to do so. And now we are, we are at the end of Jesus's ministry here in chapter 17. Um, his public ministry starts in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. And then he does all of these miraculous works and has all of these awesome teachings. And then now at 17, there is a shift. He's transitioning and he's, he's in, and it starts with this prayer and him saying, okay, father, I have completed all the works you gave me to do. And now I'm ready to finalize, to put the final nail in the coffin of death. I thought that was funny. Um, so something that kind of stuck out to me here, I want to touch on just for a minute. Um, is when he says by completing the work you have for me to do the, the word completing here, I don't think us English speakers really, um, think of it this way, but in, in the ancient Greek word here, uh, is, um, teleos and that, that communicates an idea of completion without a flaw. Like it's complete to the point where it can't be improved. It can't fall apart and it will never need to be redone. So when he says, I have completed the work you gave me to do, his public ministry is finished, and it is complete, and it could not be any better, even if you tried a second take at it. Jesus's prayer is impressive at face value and magnificent under the microscope of the language nuances. His prayer shows not only an intimate relationship with the Father, but an urgent desire to fulfill the Father's plan. We also discovered that God not only has a plan, but his plan wasn't thrown together on a whim. It was handcrafted in an orderly and logical way. The Father developed a perfect and complete plan that does everything it needs to do, and the Son faithfully accomplished everything he needed to in order to bring the plan to complete fruition. Remarkably, the father and son did this in perfect harmony with each other. They didn't fight or squabble about who would receive the credit. The father developed the plan and equipped the son. The son completed the works and pointed people back to the father. I think the coolest part of this whole passage, though, is the fact that God crafted this plan so that humankind, even after we sinned and rebelled and um, told God we didn't really want anything to do with him, He allowed us to still come to him, to still have a personal introduction with him, and for that introduction to develop and blossom into an eternal relationship that we will ultimately fulfill in his presence in heaven. The final thing I wanted to do for you um, is just kind of a fun exercise. Um, I wanted to read this passage to you as the original Christians and followers of Jesus would have heard it. And that is in the ancient Greek language. Um, So I just want to do this for you because I think that I love the idea of hearing something that my brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago also heard and hearing it in the exact same words that they heard it. So here we go, starting in verse 1. Tauta elalesen, Jesus kai paras, tus aphthamus autu, estan uranan apen. Pater elaluthen he hora. Daxasan su tanhuian. Hina hahuias daxase se. Kathos edokas auto. Exusian passe sarcas. Hina pan ha dedokas auto. Dose autos zoen ionian. Haute de estin. 
He Ionias Zoe Hina Genoskosin Setan Manan Alethanan Fean Kai Han Apostelas Jesun Christan Ego se edaxasa Epetes Gais Ta Ergan Teleosas Ha Dedocas Moi Hina Poeso Kai Nun Daxasan Me Su Pater Para Seautu Te daxehe ekan pra tutan kasman enai para soy. Thank you so much for listening and studying uh, God's word with me today. I hope um, you gleaned something out of it. And, um, you know, if you ever come across something that totally blows you away in scripture, I'd love to hear about it. So have a great day and God bless.